0: Can be New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. I get to begin by giving you a quiz. So if you turn to the back of your bulletin, you will see some sermon notes back there. And the quiz is stated here. It says, in one word... What is the central message of the Bible? There is a blank. Now, don't, uh, don't shout out your answer. I want you to take a minute and think about it, and I will give you a hint. The answer is not God or Jesus. I mean, that's what you did in Sunday school. That was always the default answer. But I want you to think about, if somebody came up to you and asked you this question, tell me, what is the central message of the Bible? In one word, what would you tell them? I, 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 Think about it, write it down, hang on to it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the time of fellowship we've enjoyed, the time of worship and singing and worshiping together, our fellowship, the worship through our tithes and offerings. And God, as we open your word now, I pray your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Help us, Lord Jesus, to hear what your Spirit is saying to us in this hour. And we ask this in your precious name, Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're here for the first time or you're uh, new to new life, we're in a sermon series that began in January. It will continue through August entitled The Story. And we're surveying the Bible from Genesis through Revelation in this series. And this weekend, the title for my message is The Third Commandment. The Third Commandment. When I say this, I'm not thinking of the Ten Commandments which are found in the Old Testament. That's usually what first comes to mind. We think of the Ten Commandments found in Exodus 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. I'm not talking about the Old Testament commandments. I'm talking about the New Testament commandments. Now, you may recall that this question of commandments came up one time when an individual came to Jesus and asked this question. He asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Of all of the commandments, what is the greatest commandment of all? Now, we have to understand why he's asking this question. Because if you were a Jewish person at this time, the scribes, the rabbis, the teachers of the law, they had made an exhaustive search of the Old Testament. And they discovered that there weren't just 10 commandments. There were over 600 about 612. And if you were a devout Jew living according to the strict letter of the law, you needed to fulfill all 612 commandments. So this man comes to Jesus and said, what is the greatest commandment of all? Tell me, what is it that I need to know to please God? Jesus said to him in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What Jesus is saying is if you have a relationship with God in which you are loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's the first one, you do well. But you're going to notice here he didn't stop with that. He went right on and talked about the second commandment. He said it's very similar. It's it's nearly identical to the first. He's saying, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you do these two things, you will literally have fulfilled all of the commandments in Scripture. Pretty impressive. And it's these two commandments that answer your quiz question. The one word I was looking for is the word relationship the Bible from beginning to end is all about relationship let me try and explain what I mean if you go to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 what do you discover there that God creates a man and God and man Adam are in this garden in relationship they're talking Adam's naming the animals. They're discussing how, uh, the garden that God has put him there to tend and to keep. They related with what... Can you imagine this? God and man communicating every day. Just having a friendship, a relationship in which there's no hindrance whatsoever. Then God looked at the situation and said, It's not good for man to be alone. Alone. In other words, as human beings, we're created for relationship, and so God made the woman a companion, perfectly suited to Adam. So in the first two chapters of your Bible, you see God and man, and man and woman in perfect harmony and perfect relationship with one another. Let me go to the other end of the Bible, the last two chapters. What do we find there? Chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation. We find a new city, a new heaven, a new earth, redeemed, sanctified, holy saints in the presence of God. And three times in one passage it says, Then God will dwell with them, and He will be their God, and He will be with them. So, your plan, you know what heaven is? It's being with God and Him with you in perfect relationship. No hindrances whatsoever. Well, we know what happened in Genesis chapter 3. We know that something entered in and compromised the relationship. Adam disobeyed God's one commandment, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And sin literally entered Adam and Eve. And what was their initial response when sin entered their being? They were guilty, they were ashamed, and they hid from the presence of the Lord. There was something now that interrupted and interfered with that relationship, and it was sin. Because they knew that God was a holy God, and they weren't. They were not no longer holy. They were guilty and ashamed. But let's not miss what happened there. Right from the very beginning, it was God who pursued them. Where are you? I'm missing our relationship. Where are you? Now listen, God knew where they were. He's omniscient after all. But he asked the question so they could evaluate where they were. God came looking for them. He came to try and restore and reconcile the relationship. He wanted them to be with him as they were before. Well, we know what happened. They came out of the hiding and, and God said, well, what did you do? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you you should not eat? And Adam said, well, it was this woman that you gave me. Can you see that the relationship in marriage now is already compromised? He's blaming her and God, don't forget. She blamed the serpent and now we have a relationship that's in tension. Husband and wife. I imagine they had some conversations about that, that moment. What do you mean it was my fault? I mean, you were the one who disobeyed. I mean... You know, you can get it. We're still working that out. All all you married couples, do do I hear an amen somewhere? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So sin entered into the human being's race. It, It entered our DNA spiritually. And now from Genesis 3 through Revelation 20, what do you find? You have people living with strained relationships. And throughout that history, God is the one who came pursuing man, saying, let's work on the relationship. Let's get this thing restored. He's tried to work on a relationship with Abraham. Then Isaac, Jacob, Moses. God spoke through the prophets. And what was the message of the prophets? Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Repent and return to me. This is the message of the entire Old Testament. Sin continues to be a problem to this very day. Which is why Jesus came. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. That we wouldn't be perished, separated from him forever. But that we might be forgiven and receive the gift of eternal life. Jesus came to this earth to deal the fatal blow to the sin problem we all have. And he accomplished that on the cross. So what happened there? He doesn't want us to perish. He wants us to be in relationship with him. He knows that sin is the problem. And Jesus said, I will volunteer and pay the sin debt they all owe. I will live a perfect life. I will never sin no matter how tempted I am. Jesus lived a perfect and holy life. And then he was put to death for us. The Bible says that God laid on him the iniquity of us all. That God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. And this is the miracle of salvation. This is the miracle of the gospel. This is the miracle of the reconciling and restoration of a relationship. That when we put our face in his sacrifice, this is the miracle God does. He takes all of your sin debt and he transfers that to Jesus. The record The detailed record of every thought, word, deed, or anything you've ever failed to do has not been nailed to the cross. Jesus paid the penalty your sins and mine deserve. And in exchange, God imputes all of his righteousness to you. So do you know how God sees you right now? He sees you as holy, righteous, and blameless in his sight. You're an adopted son, an adopted daughter. He paid the price for you. And he looks at you as a beloved son and daughter. He says, this is my beloved daughter and son whom I'm well pleased. I know that we don't often see ourselves that way, but I want you to to know that God calls you a saint, not a sinner. It's awful good news. It's about relationship. Jesus made it possible for these relationships, our relationship with God to be restored. Not only in this present life, but in the life to come. But you notice that Jesus didn't stop with the first commandment. He didn't say, just love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that's good enough. He actually answered a question that the man didn't ask. It's as though Jesus could not give the first part of the answer without giving the second part of the answer, and he says, you must love your neighbor as yourself. Do you notice there's a vertical dimension here? Our relationship with God and then our relationship with each other. The two cannot be separated. They can't be compartmentalized. In fact, in 1 John, the apostle John, he makes this connection so clearly. He says, how can a man say he loves God and hates his brother? How can you claim to love God whom you haven't seen if you can't love your brother whom you have seen? They're mutually exclusive. You can't can't say you're doing that. Now, you know, it's one thing to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's one thing to do that because after all, God is holy, he is righteous, he is merciful, he is compassionate, he's kind, he's gracious. And listen, God always has your highest good in mind in in his mind. He always wants the best for us. So it's not hard to love a God like that. People, hmm, not so much. The second commandment really gets to be challenging because, listen, people are obnoxious, prideful, selfish, and stubborn. And have you noticed that we can regularly offend each other without even trying? How's that working out in marriage? I mean, literally. I mean, there isn't a week that goes by, and and I'm not saying to my wife, honey, I was wrong. Please forgive me for what I said. Please forgive me for being impatient or unkind or irritable. We've been practicing that for almost 40 years now. And the reason that's so critical in our relationship, because we realized a long time ago, if we let bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness stay in place, it would force us apart. But we also discovered the other thing is that when we confess and repent of our sins, it actually has the effect of bringing us closer together. So she'll say, oh, Honey, forgive me for not honoring you, respecting you, being unkind. And I say, I forgive you. It's a good thing. Loving people is a difficult assignment. The reason it's difficult is we live in a broken world filled with broken people, including me and you. If you're not convinced of that fact, listen to the evening news. People are riding in the streets in Egypt, there's wars all over the world. In our own city streets, you take your life in your hands if you ride the MAX train. Every evening, there's some kind of report of injuries done to people by other broken people. And all of this then brings me to the third commandment. It's mentioned in Ephesians 4:32, and here it is: "And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you." Now we're going to spend some time this morning. T- talking about this, we're really thinking it through. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. You see, I'm convinced that it will be impossible for us to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, or love other people if we don't at the same time practice this third commandment. So how did God forgive you? I mean, if we're being commanded to forgive other people the way God forgives us, we really need to make sure we understand just exactly how did God forgive you? Well, first of all, God doesn't require you to pay for your sins because the payment for even committing even one sin would be your death and that being eternal separation from God. He doesn't want that. But payment still has to be made. The wages of sin is death. So the question is is how is God going to resolve the dilemma? How's he going to remove the barrier that exists in the relationship? And so Jesus volunteered. He said, "I will pay the price their sins deserve. I will die on their behalf." And anyone who puts their faith in that sacrifice will be forgiven and saved. So how did you become a Christian? Becoming a Christian is this God, I have sinned against you. I've done things that I know were wrong. I've sinned against people. I've hurt them. I've said things I should have never said. I've done things I should have never done. And so, God, will you please forgive me? And God's response to you is You're forgiven. The record of all sins, past, present, and future, are stamped, paid in full. They are cast as far away from you as the east is from the west, and God remembers them no more. And God is saying, you do the same. Now, I I, I know this is challenging, And so to help us grasp the magnitude of what we're being asked to do and what God did, Jesus gives us a parable in Matthew 18 to explain and illustrate how God forgives us and how we're to do the same. It's in Matthew 18, 21 through 35. The occasion is is that Peter must have had something going on and um, people had offended him. And so he came up to uh, Jesus and he said... uh, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. I'm going to stop there for just a moment. You see, according to rabbinic writings and teachings of the day, you were only required to forgive a person for committing a particular sin three times. So if they sinned against you, they they stole from you, you forgive them. They stole from you, you forgive them. They stole from you, you forgive them. The fourth time, you don't forgive them. You now can hold it against them forever. So we really need to understand what Peter is saying. I think he was having a thinking. It was pretty spiritual right now. Jesus. How many times do we need to forgive someone? Up to seven times. You know how he does that? I mean, he kind of puts his foot in it, right? And so can you imagine his response, his reaction when Jesus says to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. I wish I could have been somebody watching his reaction. I imagine his jaw dropped. Are you kidding me? Four hundred and ninety times? That's impossible. Who can do that? So he explains to them how and why we are obligated to forgive others. And he uses a parable, a parable of the kingdom to explain this this process and principle. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he should be sold... With his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not. But went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. The moral of the story. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. This is one of those passages in the Bible that we kind of swallow hard. And we're thinking, really? Really? Let's make sure we understand the numbers here. I've done the math on this and... um, Jesus is particularly uh, choosing certain numbers to make the point. Uh, 10,000 talents of gold. Uh, A talent is about 75 pounds of gold. And if you compute this, it works out in today's price of gold on the market to be somewhere around the neighborhood of $18 billion. $18 billion. Now... A denarius is equal to a day's minimum wage, how much you would get paid by going to work one day at McDonald's. Minimum wage in Oregon is $8.95 an hour, so that means $72. So the the parable is saying this, that the unforgiving servant came to his master, fell down, and knowing that he owed $10,000, Talents, $18 billion. He simply said, oh, master, please have mercy on me. Forgive me the debt. And the master looked at him and said, the debt is canceled. $18 billion? Yep. But then he goes out and find a fellow servant who sinned against him and injured him in some way and owed him the $72. He takes him by the throat and he says, you pay me the $72. He wouldn't do it. He threw him in the debtor's prison. Why would he do such a thing? I think there's a couple reasons. And it's a a reason that I think some of us struggle with at times when it comes to forgiving other people. The, The real reason is he never accounted or understood the magnitude of the debt he was forgiven. In his mind, the debt he owed wasn't as big a deal as the $72 his fellow servant owed him. And he certainly wasn't grateful to the master. Otherwise, he would have never taken a fellow servant by the throat. He would have been compassionate. Did you notice that the fellow servant used exactly the same words the unforgiving servant used when he spoke to the master? And there's another thing we need to make sure to not miss here. By forgiving that first servant that incredible sum of money, do we understand that the master suffered a tremendous loss? It cost him $18 billion. It cost the master something to forgive the debt. A huge amount. And as we're looking at these numbers and comparing them, we're thinking, how is it you could not forgive your fellow servant? Well, Pastor Al, you don't know how hard, how hard that, that was. I mean, they, they hurt me really deeply. It was a real painful injury. You just don't understand how much that hurt. It cost me. I mean, they didn't repay this money they owed me. And, and they were unfaithful. In the And I'm still dealing with the injury, the wound, and the emotions, and all that goes with it. You don't... Listen... Jesus suffered for your sins. 18 billion worth. And yes, I understand these are painful injuries. Not to minimize that in the least. Sin is painful and costly. But if we're not truly accounting for how much we've been forgiven, then we're probably not going to be very compassionate towards those who sin against us. So, How much have you been forgiven? Let's try a little exercise. If you sin once a day, how many sins is that in a year? In 10 years. Come on, math students. 3,650. In 50 years, a little tougher math, I'll help you out. It's close to 16,000. What do you suppose it is in 80 years? A lifetime. Oh, and that's only one sin a day. Let's make sure we understand what sin is. Sin is any thought, any word, or anything we do that is contrary to the character and nature of God and his laws. God says, I will hold you accountable for every idle word that men speak. So it's not only the things that you've thought, the impure thoughts, the covetousness, the anger, the jealousy that's unrighteous. Not only does God bring that to the tally, he says everything you've ever said, everything you've ever done, and if that is enough, I'm going to hold you accountable for all the things you failed to do that you should have done. How's the number looking about right now? Would we all raise our hand and say 18 billion? Looks good to me. That's about where it adds up, right? Okay. Have we really accounted for that? Have we really truly appreciated how much the Master has forgiven us? It's not until we do that we say, Oh God, I don't dare withhold forgiveness for someone, from someone who's injured me. How often do we have to do this? Well, let's look at what Jesus said in Luke 17 1 through 5. Jesus said, things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, oh Jesus, increase our faith. You mean to tell me if the guy does something time after time after time after time in the same day, every time he comes, oh, you know, I'm so sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me. You're supposed to say, yes, I forgive you. Absolutely. I wonder why that's so hard for us to do. It's a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge living with a bunch of other unwhole people on the planet, which is why we're still here. God's wanting to use us to help other unwhole people find freedom, find forgiveness. And he wants you to set an example. He wants us to demonstrate what true forgiveness looks like. So in Ephesians 4.32... The third commandment is be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another just as, just as God in Christ forgave you. And lest we miss the point, this verse isn't a suggestion. It's a commandment. And if we don't fulfill this command to freely forgive everyone who sins against us, whether they confess their faults to us or not, then I believe it will be impossible for us to fulfill the first commandment to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, or the second commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. Okay, here's another question. And I do want you to raise your hand. How many of you have ever prayed the Lord's Prayer? Would you raise your right hand? Lord's Prayer. Okay, we're going to recite that together, just the first part. And would you say it with me? We're going to use the old King James Version, so let's say it together. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Would you read that last sentence again? And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do you know what you just prayed? By the way, I promise you God will answer that prayer. You know what you're saying is, Jesus, when I show up in heaven, would you forgive me in exactly the same way I've forgiven people who sin against me? How many times have we prayed that, not realizing the seriousness of that prayer? What it really tells us is that unforgiveness is unforgivable. We truly need to appreciate what God has done for us. And he says, will you do the same? I know we all struggle with this idea of forgiving someone at times because it seems like they're getting away with something and don't have to pay. Exactly. Exactly. And you should be very thankful that that's how God treats you. I don't have to pay for my sins. Jesus did. He paid. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness means we cancel their debt. Whatever it is. We cancel their debt. Listen, this is a decision. It's a legal transaction in which we give up the right to punish the person, reject them, or make them pay for what they did to us. We cancel their debt. Forgiveness, secondly, is not a feeling. It is an act of our will. It's a decision I make. Because I understand how much God has forgiven me, I understand how freely the forgiveness was given to me, And then I'm able to say, you know, I forgive you. I forgive you. But let's make sure we understand a few things about this. All of us have a mind, we have a will, and we have emotions. Forgiveness is a decision of the mind and of the will. But when someone hurts us and injures us, we do feel emotional pain. We feel an emotional injury from the offense. And where we often struggle in our Christian lives is we're confused sometimes about the emotional part of that and why it doesn't seem to just immediately go away. A decision, an act of the will takes a moment. The healing from the emotional damage and the fallout from the sin, that takes a while. Some of you are still trying to be healed from the emotional pain you experienced as a child because a parent or someone close to you said something about you or to you that was so devastating at the time. You're still hurt from it. You're still trying to be healed from that. Someone might have, a good friend, you might have trusted, you, you gave the money, you you wanted to help them out in a time of need and they never repaid you and they never even thought about it. You suffered a financial loss. Sometimes the pain and suffering that we feel from the sins of others can be physical. And we to this day may still bear the scars in our body that resulted from others' sinful choices. You know, it's interesting. As I thought about how Jesus appeared to his disciples after the resurrection, I mean, you know the story. Crucified, buried, three days later, rose from the dead. And then he appears in the upper room. Thomas is there. And, uh, of course, Thomas is saying, you know, I'm not going to believe in this Jesus unless I see the nail prints in his hands and his feet and I see the wound in his side. Jesus pops up. He materializes in the room. And he said, Thomas, come here. Put your hand right here. What's amazing to me is even in his resurrected body, he still bore the scars from the sins that were committed against him. So you still bear the scars. It's hard for us to get past these injuries that we suffer from others. Part of the reason it's hard is because we feel like, we, you know, we're all born with this innate sense of justice. We think justice must be served. They need to pay for what they've done. And I think we saw evidence of this in the past week or so. There was a trial conducted in Florida. There was a verdict and outcome. The person was found not guilty. It sparked an outrage. Some people were for the decision. Some people were against the decision. But please make this note. Everybody had an opinion about the decision. They had this innate sense that someone should pay for what was done. There was right, there was wrong. And somehow things didn't get settled quite right. Well, let me break it to you gently you probably are not going to find justice on planet earth. Welcome to Christianity 101. Let me read a passage from 1 Peter 2, 19 through 24. It says this, For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For to this you were called. You mean God has called me? to endure grief at times, to suffer at the hands of unholy people, suffer wrongfully, yep. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit, found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. What's remarkable about this passage is that Jesus was betrayed, abandoned, never got a fair trial, was scourged, 39 lashes to his back, and he never cursed, he never reviled, he never threatened, he never retaliated. Justice would have said he had every right. He had every right to take him on. And prove them wrong. But he didn't. I find it really interesting that there was a priority in the heart of Jesus before he left this earth, he was on the cross. And does everybody remember one of the things he said from the cross? I mean, he's looking at the people, the Pharisees, that are mocking him, taunting him. The Romans have just crucified him. The thief on the one hand is reviling him. And Jesus, before he left earth, wanted to make sure of one thing, that there was not an ounce of bitterness, vengeance, and and resentment or unforgiveness in his heart. And so from the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And do you know that's true about us? Every time we sin, we really don't know what we're doing. We have no idea of the consequences of our sin. We have no idea of the hurt and the injury that we could potentially cause people. We'd never do. We act that way because we're whole. We're miserable and we want others to join us in our sorrows and our misery. Why is it we do that? Why do we hurt people? Why do we sin against people? Well, I think the bottom line is that as human beings, we've been created for relationship. We've been created to be loved and accepted and feel worthwhile. And we all, when we grow up, we want to be accepted and loved for the things that we do that are good. We try to get good grades, try to make the team. We want to be accepted by our peers, And if we can't get a sense of love and acceptance, worth and value from parents or peers or teachers or coaches, if we can't get the things that we desire and crave in our soul by doing good, we'll do it by being bad. Because in our minds, the way they work, if I don't get some kind of attention, negative attention is better than none at all that's why we dress the way we do act the way we do talk the way we do we're trying to say does anybody know I exist does anybody know I'm alive and if no one pays attention I'll just get more radical and more extreme until somebody gets my attention somebody knows that I'm alive and if no one in school will do it I'll do it in the street and the police will let me know I'm alive they'll know I exist at least I have a number See, this is a desperate need we have in our human being. We we so want to be loved and accepted and valued as a person. So in a twisted sort of way, here's what people do. They act in ways that are almost guaranteed to produce a negative response. We do things that we know are going to produce rejection. At least we're getting some attention. And what is it that person expects to happen? If they act in a sinful, mean, spirited, unkind way, they expect to be cursed at, they expect to be rejected, they expect all of the negative response. Can you imagine how shocked they are when you don't respond in kind? This might help us to understand why the Bible says, bless those who curse you? Pray for those who despitefully use you. Overcome evil with good. Why would that be a commandment? Why would that be a calling that we have as Christians? Because here's what happens when someone sins against you, when they hurt you, it's as though a lash is being put to your back, and we don't revile, we don't re- curse, we don't reject. We pray, we say, Father, forgive them like Stephen before he was stoned, as he was being stoned and nearly dead. He said, Father, don't lay this sin to their charge. Do you know what that meant? That meant that Saul of Tarsus would become Paul the apostle. He never forgot what Stephen did. He bore the stripes on his body, and that's what brought him to salvation, that love overcomes evil. Forgiveness overcomes sin. Mercy and grace overcomes bitterness and resentment. So we get the opportunity of carrying about in our body the dying of Jesus. The message of the cross is being preached to you. Oh, and I need to let you know something right up front. Is that, do you know something? God is actually going to send you unwhole broken people and say, here, practice on them. They're going to purposely say unkind things and you're going to work alongside this person. They're going to be obnoxious and irritating. I sent them just to you because I trust that you're going to know how to respond to them like I would. You may be the first person who doesn't confirm the lies people who sin believe about themselves and about God. You may be the very agent that can bring about healing in their broken lives. We expect to be rejected. We expect to be written off. But when we love an enemy, when we forgive, we cancel the debt. Even though it means we suffer, even though experience the emotional pain that that means, God says that 's why you 're still here." Jesus says, "Follow my example and forgive." So a couple things in closing. Questions often come up when I talk about forgiveness. People ask me, "Well, why am I still angry when I think about what this person did to me? I, I thought I forgave them. But the anger, pain, and emotion still rise up within me at times. I feel like I'm having to pay for what they did over and over, and they're not having to pay. And I just don't know what I thought I forgave them. Um, Chances are you did. But let me explain something, how this actually works out. The way it works out is that when we're injured, our soul is hurt by the sins of others. It's like a wound. And every time the memory comes back up, the memory of what had happened it comes back up to our minds. We feel the emotion and, and the anger of it. God is saying, forgive again. Reaffirm the decision you made a year ago. And every time you reaffirm that previous decision, another layer of healing happens. And God heals us from the inside out so that all that is left is the scar. But you know, a scar that has been healed, you still retain the memory of what happened, but you can look at it now and it doesn't hurt anymore. The pain has been dealt with. The injury has been healed. The memory still remains. So even though you may remember this five years later, 10 years later, and if, you, if any emotions still rise up, any anger, resentment, or bitterness, say, oh, God, thank you for reminding me I choose to forgive, I forgive. Thank you for this opportunity to be healed even more. The wounds we suffer from the sins others do do take time to heal. I need to make something really clear, though. Whenever those memories come back up to us, we need to make sure we understand one thing is if you choose to not forgive a person. Do you remember what the master did to the un- unforgiving servant? He delivered that person to whom? The torturers. You will be tortured by the memory of that past sin. Not only that, you get to be a cellmate of the person you wouldn't forgive. How would that be? Get chained to them for the rest of your life because you wouldn't forgive them the $72. And you know the other part about that is you become like the person you're chained to. They become your emotional focus and you will become just like them. I've had young men, you know, they they get into their 20s and and they grew up hating their father. They were bitter and resentment toward their dad and then, to their horror, they find they catch themselves saying the very same words, doing the very same things they despised in their father, and they're beside themselves. They're thinking, How in the world can I be doing that? I hated that. Uh, well, it's because you haven't forgiven. You're now chained to Him. Jesus came to break the chains, and He said, The master key to restoring damaged relationships forgiveness. The wounds we suffer from the sins of others do take time to heal. And here's my equation. I've actually come up with a math equation for it. The degree of pain and suffering we experience is directly proportional to how closely related we are to the one who hurt us. And so too will be the amount of time it will take to completely recover and be healed. This is why in a marriage... When your spouse says something hurtful, it's far more painful and damaging than if a person off the street you didn't know at all said the same words, called you a name. Well, that's like a little scratch. I mean, that'll get over tomorrow. If your wife or your spouse or your husband says that, to you, it's like somebody shot you through with an arrow. That's a pain that's going to take a little while to work through. The closer you are to a person, the deeper the injury, the more time it takes to heal from that The last thing I need to mention is that forgiveness doesn't mean there won't be consequences for the one who sins. Sin always brings consequences not only in this life but in the life to come. King David is an amazing individual. You probably have heard the story of David. You know, he committed adultery and then murdered Bathsheba's wife or her husband. Murdered him. A year later, Nathan comes and said, uh, Gave him a little story about a shepherd and sheep. And David said, The man who did this deed should be killed. He should die. And Nathan said, You're the man. David's first words were, I have sinned. Nathan then looked at him and said, You will not die. God has just forgiven your sins. I read that and I'm thinking, Really? Murder? Adultery? Yep. You've just been forgiven. Nathan then went on to say, but there's something else. You've been forgiven, but you've now opened the door spiritually to your home. You've given the enemy an opportunity to walk in and bring destruction. So Absalom, his son, decided to try to kill his father and seize the throne, drove him from Jerusalem, tried to kill him, that's murder, he then found David's wives and concubines and violated them on the rooftop of a house for all Israel to see that wasn't the only devastation that happened in the family there was all kinds of problems that emerged because of David's choice so the consequences are separate from the sin they're not punishment their are consequences. So, if someone commits a crime against you, you can forgive them, but the police might probably, will probably arrest them and put them into jail. They're forgiven, but they're still going to pay for the crime. There's a consequence for their choices. And we get confused over this, this idea of forgiveness and consequences. So, to conclude, relationships are God's highest priority. They are precious to him. They mean everything to God. You were created for a relationship with him. You're created to have relationships with one another. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first commandment. Second is love your neighbor as yourself. Second commandment. But you can't do those first two unless you do what Ephesians 4.32 is. Forgive one another just as God in Christ forgave you. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you set the example for us. You came to this earth. You showed us how to suffer injustice, how to forgive, how to love in spite of the unloving ways you were treated. And Lord Jesus, today you're calling every one of us here to follow your example, to follow your footsteps, Jesus. Lord, I thank you that we're healed and delivered not only by your death on the cross, but you bore the stripes in your back. You suffered the physical, emotional pain that sin produces so that we could be healed. And Lord, I see that you've called us to forgive as you have forgiven to bear the stripes and the injuries from others so they can be healed. Lord, we confess that we can't do any of this without you. We cannot do this without the Holy Spirit working through us. And so we ask you for that grace today. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503 266-4444 please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff along with occasional guest speakers trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you and give you hope